Today, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Swan Private. Now, you know from listening to this show that our money is broken. Fortunately, we have Bitcoin, a better money that will help us build a brighter future. But if you don't have a Bitcoin strategy and a trusted partner to help you execute that strategy, then you're probably going to fall behind. Now, I've known the Swan Bitcoin team for years. The Bitcoiners at Swan are mission driven and have deep expertise and respect in the Bitcoin space. In my opinion, this is the team you want on your side. Today, I'd like to highlight Swan's private client services division, which guides high net worth individuals and businesses around the world toward building and preserving wealth with Bitcoin. So visit swanprivate.com and learn how this concierge service gives you direct access to your dedicated Bitcoin advisor by phone, messaging, and email. Swan will guide you on complex areas such as self-custody, or you can choose to hold your Bitcoin through Swan with one of the largest U.S. regulated custodians. So make your first purchase with Swan Private and get $100 of Bitcoin. Just tell them that I sent you. You know, an opportunity like this to build and preserve legacy impacting wealth for your family and company will not likely be seen again in our lifetimes. Sign up at swanprivate.com today, mention Breedlove to your advisor, and get $100 in free Bitcoin when you make your first buy. Looks like today we'll jump into, I think you mentioned offline, there were a couple of questions you picked up on Twitter that we could talk about to start today. Yeah. Yeah. I got a DM from actually, this is, these are all questions from one person and I said I would address because I like them. Um, TBabyOG the one who messaged me and uh, I said that I had mentioned that it was stressful to recommend Bitcoin to family and friends. And then I stopped doing it and um, didn't quite understand why. And I think I've discovered that, that I think it's because I, it's probably because I actually successfully talked a few people into it, but it didn't come from them. It came from their, they were um, leaning on my conviction and then when Bitcoin did what Bitcoin does, they then didn't have the stomach for it. And I had to talk them out of selling for every dip. And it's most like, you know what it reminds me of? Is it, here's a better way to explain it. So I'm in, um, I'm, I'm married. I was, I was married before. And um, exercise has always been really important to me. I like. I like working out. I like, I, I like lifting and I have issues, you know, like lifting, I think lifting is like lifting excessively and trying to shape yourself into something that you weren't born in, but trying to actually remake the physical shape of your body is ultimately an exercise in control. And you want to exert control. And as someone who's spent of, of the decades of my life, years and years and years in the gym, I can tell you to a degree, it's an expression of my own, like part of me doesn't accept myself. And so I've mm. tried to hammer the shape of my body into something else. And so you look at someone who's like super shredded on some level, you know, they have body issues. You're seeing their body issues. And in my first marriage, I sort of let those body issues manifest themselves in the relationship. And I tried to control what she ate, what she, you know, how she um, how she exercised, all that stuff. And I got literally zero moments of joy from that struggle. 
it, it brought me nothing but unhappiness and her as well. And I think we eventually worked it out. That's not why our marriage didn't last, but I did learn something from it. And what I learned from a fundamental standpoint is that either it comes organically from her or it mm. doesn't, but it can't come from me. And I was able to like learn that lesson and, and I'm really much happier in the relationship I'm in now because from day one, I put that into practice. And I was like, look, it's gonna, whatever she eats, whatever, you know, that for men in this, in this, um, in this day and age, in this culture, it's a thing. And I decided to, because I love the person who I'm with now and I love the person I was with before, but I decided to put in practice, like whatever she eats, whatever she does, that, that, that's up to her. If she wants to be in shape, it has to come from her. If she doesn't, that has to come from her. And that's been so much better for my life and for my happiness. And it's the exact same with Bitcoin. If it doesn't organically come from the person, it won't mean anything. Mm, yeah, you're, I mean, I guess touching on the critical role of choice in all things. And that, I mean, that is the antithesis of fiat, right? Fiat meaning do this because an authority said so, right? It's not coming organically from the individual conscious agent. It's coming from some threat from without. And that just never, it always creates negative externality is my current view of it. And um, yeah, that's an interesting way, interesting, I guess, vignette <laughs> to highlight that dynamic in a non-monetary sense. Like you can't, I guess, coerce your wife by fiat to look or be a certain way or live a certain way. They have to actually choose the lifestyle for themselves. Otherwise it won't stick. Yeah. And then you have to, the, the person who, the, the, the person that they actually are organically, that's who you have to love. And if you love that person, then you're in good shape. And if you are, if you're like, well, I would love them if they only did this, then it's, right. <laughs> I, you know, I, I think that's a, that's, that's, that's very hard it's on a relationship. Love. Yeah. And in terms of Bitcoin, the beauty of it is that people choose to hold it. And if you, if you can convince someone to hold it, but they don't have conviction, then you're actually denying what Bitcoin is. That mm. it's, it's something that people hold because they're like, they, cause they can't not hold it. And right. Anytime you try and convince someone to hold it, you're actually kind of, you're kind of betraying Bitcoin. You shouldn't have to. And so that gets to my second part, which is actually got this from Andreas and uh, an Andreas talk, which is how do you convince people to buy Bitcoin? You don't, you absolutely don't. You do not try and convince them. You just don't, they'll, they'll do it when and if they want. Now, if you can't help yourself from talking about it, that's fine. But like, you can't sell people on it. I completely agree. And this might sound a bit hypocritical coming from a show that is, you know, largely centered on education about money and, and Bitcoin and whatnot. But when people ask me, uh, you know, what, what do you suggest? What do you advise? And I always say, study, right? Study, learn um, your portfolio construction ultimately in my opinion should reflect your understanding of the world or your worldview um and you said this on one of our prior episodes that you know you spend as a bitcoin holder there's a not a lot of visceral action you're taking right you're just buying the bitcoin and holding it maybe buying more accumulating over time 
but that hides the truth of all the energy you're spending building that wall of conviction, as you described. Yeah, and, and if um, someone has been convinced or, or talked into doing it or doing it under duress or doing it because you convince them, then they don't have that conviction and they'll lose that conviction at the worst moment. Exactly. Someone tweeted this at me on this topic. They said, you know, understanding Bitcoin is proof of work. <laughs> Which is interesting. It's like, yeah, it really is. It's, you were talking about the guy earlier, Hightower or something is what his name is. Kelsey Hightower. Kelsey Hightower, just sort of, um, you know, nonchalantly dismissing Bitcoin and saying all these things, but whatever the number is, I think it's about a hundred hours. You need to put in 100 hours studying it to even kind of get to level one of Bitcoin. <laughs> um, and you can almost tell when someone just hasn't done that, right? They're just, they're doing what we all did. They're dismissing it at the outset before they've hit that critical threshold of, of hours studied. And um, one other thing here, I think it's paradoxical yet interesting is that no matter, it seems to me like no matter what any of us educators if you want to call us that, do. The ultimate educator is still pain, pain itself. And in the sphere of money, no agency causes more pain than government. So I think that ultimately what happens is the oppression of government, the inflation, the excessive regulation, legislation, asset seizures, bank account, freezing, et cetera, et cetera, that is the ultimate education for people on Bitcoin. It's like you won't know how valuable it is until that day comes where you absolutely need it to survive. Um, which is funny, right? It's like Bitcoin is such a force against government oppression, yet government oppression itself is what's ultimately educating people about the value of Bitcoin. Well, that's the second, that's the second part of Andrea, the same. Um, talk of Andreas's is that he goes to South America a lot. He's like, I don't have to do any convincing to people in South America on the value of Bitcoin. They Not only do they get it instantly, but they'll risk their lives to obtain it. They don't need convincing because they've experienced it. And I don't know what it is about us, you know, you and me who grew up quite sheltered in the West. Why did it appeal to us? I, don't, I think there's something I mean, I, when I was 10, I had like a little um, bug out kit next to my bed. I don't know what, so I don't know why I've always been a preparer for disaster. Hmm. Some, something in me always has felt like there's some voice in me that's always felt like I love the foolproof self-sovereign construction. <laughs> so I don't know. I, I, it hasn't been necessary and it just called out to me, but. If you want to talk to your to your friends and loved ones about it, what I do now is I explain everything but Bitcoin first. I try and talk to them about inflation. And then I've tried to master the ability to talk about the government's expenses. If you go to um, spending.usaspending.gov, you can see the things that we spend. Just go to usaspending.gov and look at what we spend on interest, Medicare, and Social Security. And go to fred.stlouisfed.org and look at projected income and see how those numbers don't match and be able to explain it to someone. Mm -hmm. Get really good at explaining 
the inescapable mathematical conundrum that our monetary system is in. And if you explain that clearly enough and in stark enough terms, I guarantee you this will happen. Someone will say to you, so what's the answer? And then you can say, for me, Bitcoin is the only thing that makes sense and I've considered all the alternatives. But for you, might be something else. I'd say anything that, anything that can't be printed. And I've talked to some family members and they have the most creative, one, one of my family members is a music teacher and he knows about, a, um, I'm not gonna say what instrument he teaches, but he knows of a artisan who creates these instruments. And he's like, I'm just gonna buy, they're beautiful and they're timeless. You can't make more and he's gonna retire soon. I'm gonna go buy 10 or 20 of those. I'm like, that is a perfect investment. It's a perfect, I wouldn't have thought of that. And it's not Bitcoin, but it's something rare. It's something you have a specialty in and you know, they can't make more. And because you're a specialist, you know how good they are. You know, the quality, you know, just something that can't be printed. But, but um, for me, it's Bitcoin. Yeah, agreed. I, I just pulled up the usaspending.gov website <clears throat> and it says the headline on the website is the federal government has spent $3.59 trillion in response to COVID-19. Um, I'm pretty sure the U.S. government's ex, uh, direct tax revenue is right around $4 trillion. So two, two, It was 2.6 last year. Oh, 2.6. Okay. I'm getting corrected. <laughs> um, that's pretty grim when you're spending 150% <laughs> of revenue. <laughs> It is super grim. I think those uh, the, that that does more to explain the value of Bitcoin than anything else. Yeah. Another comment. This is from the same person. Um, what are the big threats to Bitcoin? I, I I'd say to me, the first thing is the threats that we can't imagine, and there are there's a million that we can't imagine because uh, this is such a random, fucked up time that something is going to happen that's completely that we never, I never pictured GameStop happening. That was so random. Mm -hmm. It's like this meme stock almost, it threatened the financial system. So the first threat is, the, the first and the primary threat is the thing we can't imagine. To me, the, the other big threat, is why I've spent so much time on the series is I couldn't imagine a credit system. And so I just couldn't take Bitcoin seriously. I mean, I loved it, but I couldn't take it seriously as the money of the world until I could spend some time imagining a credit system with Bitcoin at the center. And I feel like I've gotten a lot further. I guess like all of my biggest, most bearish fears about Bitcoin, even when I talked in this series about a threat of an attack on the 21 million hard cap, my, my bearish scenario is so bullish because they all stem from Bitcoin being the center of value for the world. And that to me is actually where Bitcoin will be in, in most peril is when it's the center of everything. So I think threats will materialize when it, when it gets a lot further. Um, yeah, agreed with that. It's, um, I mean, that's kind of how we're in the situation now, is it, especially in, like we said, in the United States where people just take functional money for granted, it just falls out of your conscious awareness. Like you don't, no one knows what money is. Where does it come from? How did we get here? And you combine that with, 
what I believe to be, you could argue with me about it, the intentional obfuscation by through the educational system, which is very entangled with central banking and whatnot. You know, there's a reason <laughs> Austrian economics is not taught. There's a reason I have a master's degree in accounting and finance. I never learned about money. I never learned about where it came from. That's crazy, right? When you actually just pause and think about that, it's like, you have the highest degree offered in this country on really the subject of money, banking, you know, the language of business, which is accounting itself. Yet the medium that language is spoken in, which is money, right? The language of value you don't learn about at all. You literally don't learn about it. You learn about money creation and uh, through banking, right? That bank banks basically loan out customer deposits to, um, to induce the money multiplier effect. So they're, they're basically adding leverage to the system. You learn about that, but you never learn about the origins of money, like Carl Minger style. Um, and that, I guess, is a similar threat if Bitcoin succeeds, that it just becomes so taken for granted that people forget about like things we talked about, the orthodoxy of 21 million and, and things like that. Um, I agree. That, 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 I really agree. I, I agree that complacency and <clears throat> success, success is probably the biggest threat to Bitcoin, ultimately. Yeah. The last thing I'll address <clears throat> is um, uh, why, why do I do this anonymously? And, and he's like, is it security, privacy? And that, that's the simple answer. And, 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 the, and I want to say something else, which is that I'm not a um, a Bitcoin whale. I didn't get in early enough. It, my 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 insistence on privacy and anonymity is actually, again, a sign of my bullishness. I th I think we have um a people talk about the unit bias in Bitcoin. Unit bias is one hundred percent. I think a of a, a cultural function that people don't ascribe wealth as being measured in something that can start with a decimal point. Like that's just something that we don't think, well, if your wealth starts with a point something, then you can't be wealthy. That is a cultural construction. And I think that Bitcoin is going to be so valuable that it will be a normal thing to talk about a wealthy person whose value starts with a, with a decimal. That's how mm -hmm. bullish I am. I think that if you have any amount of Bitcoin, you just want to stay private. If you have point something, that is going to be someone who's super wealthy in the future. And um, that's, it's, it's my, my anonymity is a, is an expression of my extreme bullishness. And, 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 and I, and and that's it. That's really the long and the short of it. I feel like I I'm I'm super hyper focused on personal security and the security of my family, and and I think Bitcoin's going to be like I said earlier. I think owning owning a whole Bitcoin will be like owning a skyscraper or an army. It's just not something someone yeah. does. Yeah. Well, I think you're smart to approach it that way. I think even people that are non-anonymous should at least have the contingency plan in place. Like you never know what's going to happen in the world. So 
to have some means to pull the ripcord and go anonymous or semi-anonymous, um, there's, there's value in that optionality. And um, yeah, I think if I recall correctly, the math I saw on this last time was there's roughly 50 millionaires in the world. So that works out to like, you know, 40 million sats per millionaire. So of all that wealth, you know, in the fiat system basically was pushed through into a Bitcoin system. That's all it would take, right? To be 40 million, which is 0.4 Bitcoin to be uh, equivalent to a fiat millionaire in today's dollars. This was maybe a year ago when I looked at this, so it's changed, but um, something close to that. Yeah, and, and, and just to repeat what I, I think this is the last episode, it hasn't, hasn't been released yet, but that Credit Suisse report, if you're in the United States and your share of global wealth, if Bitcoin becomes the distributed form of global wealth, then your lifetime earnings might be around 2 million sats. Yeah. That's 0 0.02. Aver that's, that's, by the way, that's, that's that, and that's on average. So that means there's right. a lot of people with a lot more and a lot of people with a lot less. So that's, you know, you're going to be like, oh my gosh, that person has 0.02. That person is doing good. Right. Which is what, the, what's the equivalent today? What's the average lifetime earnings? A million bucks, maybe? Um, I should look at it. it, it they were, they were, it was expressed in this report as a percentage of global wealth. So it didn't mm. have a dollar amount on it. Gotcha. Um, I want to say, you, bring up something else before we get back. Do you have something else to say? I was just going to, I'm just doing the math in my head. Like if it, if it's 50,000 average us GDP per capita, which I think it's around there and you work for 30, 40 years after taxes. Yeah. You're probably only taking home like a million and a half, a million to a million and a half. Right. I mean, it works out to be close to a dollar a sat. Yeah. Which should Bitcoin at a hundred million in today's value. Yeah. Um, this is just, um, this is from my, my ruminations over the last couple of days, but it's, it relates to like the last, I want to bring it up now because it, it's just a continuation of the last couple episodes that we've recorded. And it hit me, man. Like, let me start, let me start with this. I, I'm going to get back into mortgages and the, how the mortgage industry works, but let me back up. And because of Bitcoin, I've now learned to be comfortable with this term, which is loan to value ratio. Bitcoiners, I think Bitcoiners really think a lot about loan to value ratio. And, and if you're, if you're, in case you're new to it, loan to value ratio is the amount of the loan in the numerator and the value of the collateral in the denominator. So if you're borrowing $10,000, that's the numerator, the collateral you have to post to borrow that 10,000 might be 20,000. So your loan to value ratio is 50%. You're borrowing half of the collateral you're posting, which means technically you already have the means to spend the money you want to borrow. So why would you borrow money when you already have that money? Well, because you think Bitcoin's going to go up, you don't want to spend it. So you borrow against it. You post your Bitcoin as collateral and you borrow against it. And the, the companies that offer Bitcoin loans, and there's so many unchained, I mean, everyone does it. Every Bitcoin, centralized Bitcoin service, Coinbase, 
Ledin, BlockFi, Nidig. Every, everyone does this now. And they all have different loan to value ratios they insist on, but they're all, in every single case, you're posting more collateral than you're borrowing. And always the, the, the minimum you can do is, I mean, you have to at least have double the value, which means the loan to value ratio kind of starts at 50% and it goes down. Sometimes you have to put up two, two or three times what you're borrowing. So then you have a loan to value ratio of 33% or 30% or 20%. Abra, I think offers a interest-free loan if you put up a thousand percent. So if you put up 10 times the value you're borrowing, then you don't pay interest. But of course, then you're giving them this Bitcoin can do whatever they want. It's so loan to value ratio is like a little bit complicated. You have to get used to the term. I never thought about it until Bitcoin came along. Uh, well, one thing I'd add here is that these LTVs are put in place due to Bitcoin's US dollar price volatility, right? You're putting up twice the collateral for a loan because in the case that Bitcoin draws down 50%. Whereas typically in other asset classes, the LTV can be much higher. Well, that's what I'm getting to, but I don't no. think it's, I, 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 well, I say it with that tone because I don't think it's, I think it's, um, and I'm saying this only because I'm, I'm in the middle of this, I'm going to mention this book again, um, Money at Interest, The Farm Mortgage on the Middle Border, written in 1955. But mortgages before the government got involved to, um, in the 20s, before the government got involved to guarantee mortgages, mortgages maxed at 50%. And, and in highly volatile areas like the West, which was in the 1850s, which was considered uh, Kansas, the Dakotas, Iowa, parts of Illinois, where property values were going up fast, AKA implied volatility, they would only loan 30%. So what was normal for a mortgage was a 50 would max out at a 50% loan to value because lenders didn't want to lose. And that was off, that was off productive farm. That, they wouldn't even make loans to urban real estate where the entire value of the real estate was on the speculative value. They would only make loans. The, 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 this, is, this book is a case study of a few lenders. But these specific lenders would only loan to farms because farms were productive enterprises and they had an income. They're really loaning against the income. And it hit me that our current mortgage industry is and has been an 80 to 90% loan to value ratio. And it struck me that our entire mortgage industry is completely illiquid because if you're lending out 80 to 90%, it's like there's no room for the home to go down in value. You're, you're presuming the ability to immediately repackage this loan into a security and sell it and shift, shift the blame and shift the burden onto somebody else. So our entire mortgage credit structure is inherently built on an illiquid loan to value ratio that presumes that home values will never go down Almost no one will default, which is not realistic. And that you can sell them to someone else. To me, that is, that's only possible when you have a central bank that's willing to take on, again, go to fred.stlouisfed.org 
you'll see they have the, the, the Fed now owns 2.6 trillion in mortgage-backed securities because these loans have been immediately offloaded. But this, this structure of an 80 to 90% loan-to-value ratio is, um, is an inherently illiquid and inflexible structure that requires only number go up constantly for security, for, for home values. Hmm. Well, that is um, quite the pickle, huh? <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, this is back to like the rock in a hard place that the Fed faces and why it's just an impossible thing. It's an impossible job that you have to keep pumping liquidity in the system to not only keep real estate markets at nominal, at or near nominal all-time highs, but you also have to do the same thing for equities, right? Where all of the, the pension money, the endowment money, um, large capital pools are heavily invested. But clearly that injection of artificial liquidity also stimulates inflation. So that's where the Fed's at now, right? We're talking about rate hikes over the next, they're being priced in over the next year or two. But we know that with every rate hike, you just basically shake the house of cards effectively. Mm -hmm. And once there's some semblance of collapse, the Fed does the dovish pivot and they just relax on the rate hikes, start lowering rates. If they can, you know, already kind of near the zero bound. Um, and it's just impossible. It's just impossible. And then, so you end up with this situation where you have real asset and price inflation. You have zero or near zero yields. So you're in this negative uh, real yield environment where basically the productive population is bearing the cost of bad monetary policy and all of that all of that inflation all of that necessary asset inflation existentially necessary for the mortgage industry for example the mortgage industry would collapse because of those high loan to value ratios because they had to incentivize when 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 home values started to collapse in in the great depression and home values from the real estate boom in the 1925 you had um, over a million mortgages that were going to go bad and you had lenders who weren't going to rewrite those mortgages and so the government created the homeowners loan corporation and ultimately the fha to buy those loans and then to rewrite them as longer longer duration 30-year mortgages and that's sort of how the the it actually started as 20-year mortgages and then it became 30 and i was just thinking the other day i was like fuck, well, are they going to do 40 or 50 year loans? I just Googled it. It exists. There's 40 year mortgages. <laughs> of course. Of course it exists. Of course, if you can yeah. think of it, it exists. So um, all of that inflation, which is existentially important to our system or else it will collapse, it's, it, it comes at the expense of anyone who's saving in dollars or holding dollars. That's where it comes there's from. A great, there's a great paper I just read Tira Demister wrote this years ago, maybe, I forget, 10 years ago, maybe, but he's describing the business cycle, right? The Austrian business cycle theory, where um, this is like the crowning achievement of, of Mises that he described, deduced from first principles, what causes the business cycle and its fiat currency debasement. Uh, but Tira wrote this excellent paper and the title escapes me at the moment, but basically saying that that is a cycle of fraud, that once you start debasing the currency, there's an initial fraud, right? Where you're running a fractional reserve. So you've got more paper in circulation than you have money in reserve. And that 
initial fraud has to be covered up with more and more fraud over time. So you have to delay, you have to restructure debt, right? Delay the repayment term. Um, and, it, and it does so in like an exponential accelerating rate. And so that's where we're at. So of course you're going to have, we're 30 year mortgage is the norm today. I would expect 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, like we'll just go, we'll go until it breaks, right? We'll push this thing as far as it can go. So I guess what I'm trying to say here is that I'm a new way to view central banking in my mind is that it is a social experiment, global social experiment, seeing how far we can really push a fraudulent system. And you get in all you get all these weird symptoms and consequences, uh, like we're describing here. Yep. And I and I and I you know again I I'll repeat, I I don't um I'm actually not mad at the system. It 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 kind of happened accidentally. We mm -hmm. not only did it happen accidentally, but it is so old. This this system that we're in right now probably began in July of 1913 when hostilities broke out for World War One, which is where we're going to talk today. But like that system, when they even began it, we're going to get into the plumbing of it today. They didn't even understand what they were doing on the day they started it, but then exactly. it began. And I think, and, and, and this whole series is essentially one giant book review. I think part of Pagli's thesis is that this was, um, the, the, break, the breakdown of the gold standard was you, you can chalk it up a lot to just accident. Just humans just didn't know what they were doing. They created this thing and then they broke it by accident. And I, so I feel like I don't, I, I'm not, I'm not mad at, at the system and I'm not mad at the central bank. I don't, I don't, they have a choice. I think they're completely bound to the path they're on. And it's up to the individual to the everyday average laboring individual to come to their own independent understanding of it. And in fact, the more people who understand this sooner and can find exits from the system, aka Bitcoin, the better for everyone, better for the individual, better for everyone. But uh, I think it just happened yeah. excellently. Yeah, I, I agree. It's an incremental self-deception, right? This, so Richard Feynman has this quote. He says, you must not fool yourself and you were the easiest person to fool. Basically, like the first <laughs> rule is to not fool yourself. But again, I've, I've tried to describe this this fraud, I am calling it a fraud, which sounds like there's distinct malicious intent. And I'm sure there was by different people at different times, but this is the systemic outcome of all of this, like the rock and a hard place we're in today. I don't think this was planned in 1913. Like, Oh, we're going to push them all the way into this dark corner in a hundred years or a hundred plus years. It's just an, a sequence of individual economic actors exploiting loopholes available to them, right? A lot of that manifests is just printing money to cover up bad decision-making or to externalize inflation as the US has largely been able to do since 1945. Um, you're just creating, you're sowing the seeds for a reckoning to economic reality at some point. And the longer you, this is the old Talebian concept, Delayed volatility is exacerbated volatility. Like you can't avoid it. You can't hide it. You can't suppress it or you can suppress it, but it's temporary. And when it does manifest itself, it manifests itself more severely. That's what we have been doing with fiat currency. We have 
to mm-hmm. keep nominally, we keep printing money to nominally paper over our problems, but it does not solve any real economic problems whatsoever. And that's where we're at today, in my opinion. Um, that is where we are at today. So we left off, back to the subject of the series, we left off talking about the 18% inflation and in pay, pay, pay raise for coal miners um, in the first year of World War I. But um, in jumping to that, I, I just kind of skipped over like the very first few days of World War I, which again is how you covers in the book. Um, as we've said that the, the international trade system, because gold has its own physical limitations, it was really an international, the gold, the, the gold standard was really an international credit system. So in order for payments in the system to continue, lenders have to keep lending and borrowers have to keep borrowing. So then Austria-Hungary issues an ultimatum to Serbia. Instantly, everyone knew that war was fulminating. And so the international credit-based system, which is based on the pound, it just like stopped within a couple of days. And on July 31st, 1914, oh, I said 13 earlier, it's 14. Uh, July 31st, 1914, the London Stock Exchange closed for the first time ever. And it's because no one, all those credits and all those debits that are flowing back and forth, they're all backed by the gold holdings of borrowers and the lenders. And suddenly, because of the outbreak of hostilities, there was this balance of payment system where if I owed you money, I had a series of credits, eventually we'd settle in gold. Well, suddenly the dis that gold was in question. And so all lending stopped. It was a credit system that was entirely based on peacetime. Like it required peace. The gold standard required global peace to function because you needed peace to transport all this gold back and forth. But incentivized the, war, as we touched on last time. Mm-hmm. The um, London had been through panics before. Uh, there was there's panic in 1857, 1866. Um, they sort of had a playbook for panic, which is to lend freely at high interest rates uh, and at times to um, either uh, suspend Peel's Act or suspend convertibility. So they that's what they did. They suspended convertibility and... Um, no one, none of the banks in Europe were prepared for this. No one knew what to do except for the Reichsbank who planned it. They had set aside a special unit in advance and issued special credit notes, which is just fiat money. But no one else knew what to do, but London did have experience with panic. So they, like within two days, they were issuing loans to um, people who had good assets, who had good security, anywhere from three to 10%. And the only catch was that you couldn't then take that, borrow that money, and then bring it back to the bank and exchange it for gold. But if you were going to spend it into the economy, pay your bills, then you could get a loan. And it actually got the credit system moving again. So even though there was an outbreak of hostilities, a, a, a real panic was averted, but they averted the panic by suspending convertibility. Again, I, if I were them, I, 
I don't know what else I would have done. Our system was based on gold and it had worked just fine. This introduced a massive new wrinkle. This is kind of like the only thing you could really do. Um, deficit financing was a thing in Europe before the last time before World War I that deficit financing became institutionalized was the Napoleonic Wars. And so here we are back again, where deficit financing is the thing everyone turns to. Now it's happening in the U.S. as well. I mean, it's the thing that governments do when there's a crisis. <laughs> right. <laughs> Let me ask you this. Would, could you imagine um, something similar happening today where banks would issue new lines of credit to consumers or, or whatever form of helicopter money um, we might imagine while simultaneously restricting the buying of Bitcoin? Do you think that's a measure that would be taken? I think, yes, I, I feel like, I think Bitcoin will get, Bitcoin and the, um, the KYC monster that we live in, I, I think that KYC is a shakedown. I think it's criminal. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I would like to escape it. I think that Bitcoin will get sucked into this system. They'll sort of become indistinguishable from one another. But I think there will also always be a thriving black market for Bitcoin. So I think the Bitcoin will straddle the entire economy, whereas within nations, Bitcoin will pass back and forth like, like certain chemicals get through the blood-brain barrier. Mm -hmm. Bitcoin will travel in and out of the, the regulated environment of each nation. But on the global stage, Bitcoin will trade freely, mm -hmm. just like dollars do. Eventually, you know, if Bitcoin, let's say you're in country A, which may be the US, country B, you might have illegal Bitcoin or legal Bitcoin, but they'll just leave the country, get washed, get traded, have their value, and then they'll re-enter somehow. Hmm. And in that case, you'll have countries that will embargo the buying and selling of Bitcoin and they'll do what they can. But I think that the black market will keep the Bitcoin price honest and it will mean that you can probably always buy food with bitcoin hmm. even if you're within a country that has somehow forbade you from owning bitcoin or buying it or selling it someone will have some i think it's going to be different everywhere and it's going to be, it's going to change from time to time but yeah people will use anything they're given so if if if, if a country tries to outlaw bitcoin those who choose to be law abiding won't use it and they'll use the helicopter money that they're given. And this in fact will create a much higher, it'll, it's all unintended consequences. It'll, it'll create a much higher reservation demand for Bitcoin. Just like when World War I broke out, they suddenly you weren't allowed to own gold and different countries tried different methods to get people to turn their, in, turn their gold into the central bank. In France and Germany, they tried patriotism. You owe it to us to give us your gold. And it worked. A lot of people gave their gold to the central banks. They turned in their trinkets and their jewelry. But, but more people just tried to get, everyone was, the bottom line is there was a scramble to get gold. So whether you gave yours to the central bank or whether you hoarded it, all that those embargoes did was increase demand such that no one wanted to spend it. And from what I've heard from people living through hyperinflations is the first rule is don't spend your gold, keep it. So, you know, it's, it's, it's going to have the most adverse unintended consequences, I think, drive the value way up. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, but it makes, and again, that's just why this is such a useful prism to see how, how gold, how people behave in relation to gold during times of hyperinflation or any geopolitical stress, war, you know, um, 6102, things like that. So, um, yeah, just very, very useful to look at Bitcoin. Through yeah, it's, 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 it's the prism that's taught me everything about where we're going, really. Yeah. You can kind of answer all these questions about where we're going by looking at what happened during this period. Mm-hmm. This is, I'm, I'm going to repeat something I read. I'm doing a lot of repeating today, but in this new context, managing, this is from, from the book, managing the national debt, this is the new meaning. Now, managing the national debt meant manipulating the capital markets in order to facilitate placing government bonds issued in unprecedented volume. The main objective was to keep interest rates down. This is a passage which is written about 1914 to 1919. And you would think this was written about 2022. To just keep convincing people to buy more government debt to keep Mm -hmm. the pyramid scheme going. Like I said, it's 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 probable, it's possible that people didn't really understand the implications of what they were doing. There's an economic journal that came out in 1930, and Pally has a long quote from it. And it, I just love getting into the, the, the plumbing of all this stuff. This guy writes uh, Anderson. He writes the the government first borrowed. This is now talking about the Bank of England, uh, the um, United Kingdom. The government first borrowed from the Bank of England on ways and means bill. Ways and, they had a ways and means, just like we have one, and ways and means bills were just, just think of it as government debt. So the government borrowed from the Bank of England on ways and means bills, meaning they sent these bills, which are debt securities, to the Bank of England, and they, they got, in, in, in return, they would get a deposit account at the Bank of England, so aka spendable money in Bank of England legal tender. So the government first borrowed from the Bank of England on ways and means bills, and the bank bought short-term treasury bills. This had the double purpose of giving the government the cash it immediately needed by putting deposits with the Bank of England. Sorry, I'm, I'm trying to transpose some meaning as I read. I'm gonna read the actual language. This had the double purpose of giving the government the cash it immediately needed and of putting additional deposit balances with the Bank of England into the hands of the joint stock banks. Because as the government drew against its balances with the Bank of England, they were spent with customers of the joint stock banks. And then the balances were transferred to the joint stock banks themselves. I'm, I'm going to stop just to, just to explain what I'm reading. The Bank of England would sell bonds, the 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 government of England would sell bonds to the Bank of England. The Bank of England would then create a deposit account for the bank, for, for the government. Then the government would essentially write checks or draw on those deposits, and they would spend them to the vendors who service the government, which is everyone, the, everything the government spends money on, from the people it pays to food. And those people have accounts everywhere in the United Kingdom, including at the regular commercial banks, which were called the joint stock banks. So now you're getting paid by the government. You have a salary from the government. You deposit into your bank, which is a joint stock bank. So now the joint stock bank has this money, which the Bank of England created. So I'm going to pick up with the quote. 
The increased volume of reserve money for the banking community made money easy, permitting the expansion of general bank credit, which enabled the banks to buy more treasury bills and government bonds and to finance the community in buying government bonds. The London money market appears not to have understood the operation fully at the beginning of the war, and it's not entirely uncertain that the Bank of England did. The exigencies of war justified everything, and the making of an easy money market became a recognized institution. So you talk about like tripping your way into creating this system. Uh-huh. You have the central bank creating accounts for the government. The government spends it into the economy. Now there's more money to serve as reserves because it's money that the government spent that creates an easy money environment and people can now create more credit and use that credit to buy more government bonds, which perpetuates the cycle. And I don't think people, they might not have understood what was happening. So World War I, now we're sort of caught up to this, like the one example we had of the the coal miners that got an 18% raise. Uh, Talley has a table of currency expansions between um, just during World War I, so 1913 to 1919. If you index the money supply in 1913 as a value of 100, by 1919, the money supply in the U.S. was at 173, so almost doubled. And by the way, the U.S. didn't suspend convertibility for its citizens. Um, the, US, the U.S. inflation was all through credit expansion. Um, Japan, if you index 1913 at 100, by 1919 was at 223. Switzerland was at 230. Denmark was at 240. The UK, 240. The numbers just go up. Netherlands, 270. Sweden, 275. Norway, 305. France, 365. Italy, 440. Spain, 185. Not too bad. And then Germany, 826 off an index of 100 in 1913. So this... expansion of the the money supply happened every, these aren't all the countries that experienced it, but this is just an example. They all printed the money. What's interesting too, is that uh, the Bank of England, you can go to their website. They cite an average inflation rate um, during World War I at 15.3% a year. And I was thinking like, at first I was like, oh my God, that's such huge inflation. And I was like, no, it's actually, if you're in in the middle of World War I and prices only go up 15%, you're like, that's, you wouldn't notice that you would notice it, but you'd be like, of course, prices went up. We're at war. Like it would be completely invisible. And of course, Pal backs this up. He's got a line. He says, indeed, it took several years before the public grasped the causal link between the rising note circulation, well over fivefold in the UK, for example, and the price inflation and ceased to put the blame on physical shortages, alleged or real, or on you, the ubiquitous speculators. Again, <laughs> All of this rhymes with 2021, 2022. And, and everything I read makes me think that we're in a similar period, which means we're on the verge of some major transition as we were, as, as the world was in the 20s, the beginning of the 1920s. Now I'd like to tell you about a great new Bitcoin show on the scene that you've got to check out. Brought to you by Swan Studios and Bitcoin Magazine, this show is Hard Money with Natalie Brunel. Natalie is an Emmy-nominated journalist bringing unparalleled experience to the Bitcoin media scene. And personally, Natalie is one of my favorite voices in the Bitcoin space. 
Each week on Hard Money, you'll get the top headlines of the week with analysis you won't find anywhere else. Hard-hitting interviews with amazing guests like myself and other top minds in the Bitcoin space. And the show will take you directly into the lives being changed by Bitcoin all over the world. Check out Hard Money at swan.com backslash hard money. Today, I want to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. So how does health insurance work? You send an egregious amount of money to an insurance company. They hold it in a pool of depreciating fiat currency. Then when you have a large health event, you have to pay them even more via your deductible. And then you hope they will cover your bill. And in fact, one in six bills are denied by healthcare.gov plans. It's time to take control of your own healthcare bills. I'd like to introduce you to CrowdHealth. It's a decentralization of healthcare using Bitcoin as an alternative to health insurance. Instead of sending fiat currency to a big corporation, you send that money to an account controlled by you, a portion of which is converted into Bitcoin. Then if you have a big health event, you have a community of Bitcoiners that will use the money in their accounts to help you out. To get more details, go to joincrowdhealth.com backslash breedlove, where you can find the promo code for $99 a month for six months. How is it that people get so far from Occam's razor of just like, of course, printing money is increasing prices? Is it, is it just the hysteria of the times that I, I don't know. So much the confusion, smartest people you can do it. blame anything, as we're doing, by the way, here in 2022. No, you're asking a question that that it tortures me because I hear smart people, and and even there's a a crowd amongst Bitcoiners who have taken this position that the central bank is not printing money and that reserve creation isn't inflationary. I I don't. I'm baffled. I'm I'm like you're. Are you ignoring grab? Are you ignoring reality? Are you ignoring what my actual living experience and eyes are telling me? No, it's 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 a lot simpler than that. Yeah, that, I mean, look at the way that I, I I outlined how central bank absorbing mortgage-backed securities, going all the way back to the 1920s, has created an illiquid, propped-up mortgage industry that allows people to borrow 90% of the loan for 30 years. That is that is directly inflationary. It is directly inflationary because it is a system which entirely presupposes home values going up forever. Yeah, it's inflationary. And the question you just asked is, is I don't know how people get so far away from Occam's razor. I don't, I don't understand. Is it their desire to? I, I don't know. I really don't know. It just seems like there's a big attack surface on people's mind and I guess it goes back to what we said earlier. There's just this general ignorance of all these topics, right? Inflation, money, interest rates, debt, mortgages, the cost of war, even the the concept of speculation. I mean, that, people, these are just, I guess, blind spots for people. So in that blind spot, you can fill whatever boogeyman you want as being the cause of price increases. You know, today it's supply chain disruptions. There's, I've already seen some headlines recently we're talking about, um, you know, Russia, Russia's cyber attacks, all of these things that are, are going to be responsible for, for price inflation. Yet the mainstream media slash corporate press never points its Oculus at the central bank ever. 
and it's the most obvious, you know, we know it both inductively, looking at history historically, what's happened when we print money. And we also know it deductively, you know, again, Mises solved this whole thing back in the the forties when he wrote human action, um, culminating in the Austrian business cycle theory. But I don't know. I don't know how that doesn't stick, I guess. I don't know. I, I, I think, know. you know, we are um, trying to learn um, about Roth, it. So. Roth, Rothbard talks a lot about, um, the study of historical statistics being incompatible with economic truth. And I mm -hmm. think that has something to do with it. I think some people who are actually at extraordinary high intelligence plus aptitude for processing statistics can create other narratives from statistics by aligning them in a certain way. Like for example, very compelling if you look at Snyder's like, um, I'm not saying Snyder's guilty of this, but if you look at his like, all the interest rate changes have preceded Fed actions. Mm -hmm. And that's like a nuanced parsing of the data to say, well, how can the Fed be causing this if the changes precede what they do? I mean, there's just a lot, there's, there's, there's infinite ways to look at this, at the statistical evidence. And Rothbard, Rothbard's point is that you can't test any economic truth by looking backwards yeah. at statistics. Yes, that's why, you know, there's a big bright line between economic history, which is like an observation of what happened and actual economics, which is deduced from axioms. And I guess that, that maybe that's a key point here too, is there is a, most people don't even know the word praxeology, much less understand its implications. Uh, so there's this bit, and this, is, this applies to everyone. This applies to intellectuals. I mean, smartest people in the world don't know shit about praxeology. And maybe that's it. It's like, you, you can look at this, this, this sequence of events historically, and you can ascribe whatever interpretation to it you want, ultimately, because you can, right? That's the frame problem, as we call it in philosophies. Whatever frame you put around it tells a different story. He who controls that frame controls the narrative. But that's what um, deduction is, right? To be able to deduce, deduce from axioms, and you can, you can cut through a lot of that noise and actually discern um, some deeper truths, I guess, deeper than, than empiricism itself. And that is just noticeably absent from the mental models of most people that, that I know, um, myself included, by the way, I'm not trying to put myself on some kind of high horse here. Five years ago, I didn't know anything about this. Um, as someone that thought, you know, I had read a lot and studied and been in this rabbit hole for a long time, I was blind to it. So, um, I guess the why is a question mark, but it definitely seems like it is a reality we are dealing with today. I still, by the way, <clears throat> I, I do not like the word praxeology because it sounds so made up. It sounds like, you know, you know what it sounds like to me that with that word, it sounds like if you were like in high school and you like had a science for like talking to girls and you like made it up with your friends so you could talk in code, that, and it's always what it sounds like. Hey man, let's talk about praxeology. And then you laugh because yeah. you really, it, it's like, I, I just, I just don't like it as much as I've tried to understand it and am like immersed in, in the thinking of it. I do find it to be a hokey sounding word. That is a hokey just talking, sounding just, word. Right. And it's esoteric. Um, I don't know what else we could call it, but whatever. I'm open to suggestions, but
I mean, I, I think the study of human action is better. Yep. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Action, actionality, something like that. One um, redeeming quality about it is that it, if you just get into the etymology of it, praxeology, praxis is action. This is the, the root of words like practice, practical, practitioner, things like that. So um, I guess Mises was going, <laughs> going um, for that type of connection when he- when I he didn't know that. Praxeology. Well, I like it slightly better because I didn't know that. <laughs> um, bright prices in Germany during World War One, they all these old tables that I find, they all have their different way of measuring it. So the Pally's table was indexing things at 100 in 1913. This other table um, indexes things at the number one in 1913. Mm -hmm. So in prices in Germany, these are, uh, I was, what we just talked about was money supply. This is now prices. Prices in Germany, I'll, I'll back up one more time. Money supply in Germany went up, if you index at 100 in 1913, it went up to 826 at the end of the war. If you talk about prices in Germany, if you index them at one, this is a different methodology, then by 1919, they closed at 11.14, so that's over a thousand percent increase in prices. And most of that occurred in the final year, but their yearly inflation was higher than England. They had first 2%, not much in the first year, then 16%, then 15%, and then 20%. And then in 1919, prices went up by 328%. And of course it went up way, like you'd think that was it, but they went way more after that. But I would say that all of these numbers, this uh, inflation in, in England, Germany, they, I can completely see how no one thought about the money printing and no one thought that the inflation was exorbitant because you're living through World War I. Mm. You're living through one of the most cataclysmic events in all of human history. You're not going to focus on the fact that bread got... 15 cents more expensive or something like that. Mm. Um, an interesting side note on the inflation plumbing of the US because the US actually stayed on the gold standard during the war and they deficit financed the war and they created the new federal reserve system and they didn't directly buy government bonds. The feds didn't the Fed didn't get into buying government bonds until after the war, but what, the, what they did do was they gave credits and deposits to member banks so they could buy the bonds. But they, what they also did was they lowered the reserve requirements super dramatically during World War I. The, the Fed system, which was new, they divided all the banks in the country into this three-tiered system. There were these, the first tier was central reserve city banks. It's one term, central reserve city banks. Then there was reserve city banks. So you just drop the central part. That was tier two. And there's country banks. That was tier three. So in 19, and they all had different reserve requirements. In 19, the most important ones being the central reserve city banks, most important banks had the highest reserve requirement. In 1913, that was 25% reserve requirement. Then the reserve city banks was 15.6 and country banks was 7.4. By 1920, they were lowered in the central reserve city banks from 25% to 4.8% reserves. Central res uh, uh, in um, uh, 
Reserve city banks lowered from 15.6 to 3.34% reserve ratio. And in the country banks, from 7.4 to 2.5%. So Pal Yee sums it up. He says the chief source of wartime inflation finance in the United States was the man-made enlargement of the credit base. So this gets back to like the, some of the, the, the two, the one foundational part of all inflation is that there's really two sources of inflation. There's credit inflation, which could happen under a Bitcoin standard. And then there's government printing money, which could not happen under a Bitcoin standard. And all of this inflation happened, like I said, in, in every single belligerent country. Once hostilities ended, I mean, all these countries had to onshore all of their most important production because they couldn't ship it. It was too dangerous. And so all of this overproduction should have been unwound and the countries should have taken their deflationary medicine, which is normally what happens in a gold standard to pay through deflation for the printing you've done during the war, which is what had happened for centuries leading up in England, but more specifically in the, in the, the last 30 or 40 years on the classical gold standard. But you only have to pay that deflationary medicine if you want to return to convertibility at a fixed ratio at the previous fixed ratio. So hmm. not only you, you could refix it at whatever the new price is if your currency has slipped, but if you want to go back to the old ratio, then you have to devalue your currency to get back to the old to the old exchange rate. But then you had this political class in Europe and America that was ruling over a population that just went through World War One. You had 10 million dead. Listen to um, one of my favorite uh ways to learn about World War One is Hardcore History, Dan Carlin podcast, episode 53. Just listen to the episode on Verdun and how, mm. how horrible that was. And so you had the entire population of the world who literally just experienced this. And now you're going to tell them as a politician, oh, and you have to suffer a deflationary depression to pay for it after the fact. It just wasn't, there was no way that was going to happen. And so it leads to um, what I call the the best of all worlds fallacy, not the best of both worlds, because both best of both worlds implies two worlds, but best of all worlds, meaning you're, you're, you're cherry picking the best from several different alternative universes. Huh. And it's a fallacy born of the desire for people who want a return to stability and accountability of the gold standard. People did miss that. It's not like everyone forgot it instantly. So they wanted that but they also wanted an inflation finance prosperity. You know, now we're in the 20s and, and, and peace is broken out. They also wanted a managed money and stable prices, but they also only want stable prices in the form of them not going down. <laughs> so like they want the best of everything with none of the pain. And I, it's certainly understandable. I don't know, I'm not faulting anyone, but it's, these are, this is an impossible bargain. Uh. And so there's a major boom after the war because all this, I'll just, I'll read, I'll read from the book, powerful vested interest prevented any major reduction in the vastly expanded agricultural and industrial productive capacity, which had been built up to meet the exigencies of the war and which could be sustained only through subsidies and import restrictions once the excessive wartime demand had ended. The public and most politicians too preferred inflation within reasonable bounds 
to dismantling the uneconomical wartime ventures. With the resulting financial losses and increase in unemployment, such a dismantling would bring. This popular demand for an artificial inflation-supported prosperity, in effect, prevented a meaningful return to the more or less automatic economic forces of the pre-war gold standard. Yeah, the, the deceit occurs on both sides of the equation, right? It's the public and the politicians to prefer inflation within reasonable bounds. Is it, you know, you mentioned this earlier, unit bias being something so deeply ingrained. Are, do we just have this nominal value bias that we want to always see number go up and everything that we somehow, maybe that's contributing to this recurrent self-deception through fiat currency inflation. It's like, just, just print the money and make the number go up, please. Right. My wages, my house, whatever. I do um, think that there's a, that there's a genetically encoded points, a cruel mechanism in our brain that wants to see an amassing of um, whether it's, stores of food or, you know, there's just like a hoarding instinct that we are born mm -hmm. with. And I think that Bitcoin is possibly the ultimate expression of this because it's just, it, it, it really is pure points. There's mm -hmm. nothing material that goes along with it. And um, a lot of people have said, once you understand Bitcoin, you realize you don't have enough and that's no matter how much you have. Yeah. I mean, I think Sailor said that. Yeah. Sailor said it or someone else who I've, who I've fallen out of favor with. So I'm not going to give them more publicity, <laughs> but um, I think Sailor did say it, but yeah, I, I do think that there's some inherent desire for number go up inside of our brains. I mean, if you're a hunter gatherer wouldn't you always want, wouldn't you just need more? Yes. But this, like therein lies the, um, what is this? The, I keep calling it a self-deception. I don't know what else to call it. It's like trying to make number go up at all costs in nominal terms creates all these negative externalities we're talking about, right? Like the business cycle, warfare, deception, suspension of convertibility, like a repeated like a repeated love affair with number go up. We'll, we're, we're willing to go to the ends of the earth to make it happen. And it just keeps blowing up in our face. Well, the key thing is at all costs, you know, I think humans, I'd say have a desire for their personal number to go up. But as Sailor pointed out in your series with him, there's a caloric cost to number go up normally. And so humans are always making the trade-off. Am I willing to spend the calories for this new number go up right. chapter of my life? Or do I have enough number and I'd rather save the, save the calories? And I think that's what's cool about being um, a self-sovereign economic actor in a dynamic and sovereign monetary system is that you can constantly make that trade-off for yourself. Okay, I'd like the number to go up, but there will be a calorific cost. And if there is a cost, then I'm going to, I'm going to try and economize that cost so that I can get the most number for the least effort. Mm -hmm. But I also 
just might not want to put forth the effort, AKA retirement. And I do think there's also, uh, we are genetically encoded to want to retire and to save energy. So there will come a point where the desire for energy saving and enjoyment and relaxation equals or, or, or exceeds the desire for number go up. And then you, then you retire and limit your expenses. Yeah. But even then you want yield, right? You want yield on your savings. Mm-hmm generate income on your accumulated capital. So even there, there is this, the other way I've described this is the, this universal human proclivity to obtain something for nothing, right? This is, it's a great thing in terms of it being the impetus for entrepreneurs, right? To go out into the world and cleverly yet lazily solve a problem, right? To do something better, cheaper, faster, and then sell that solution to the world. That's, that's great. But that same impetus of getting something for nothing also leads us to this whole inflationary self-deceit where we think we can get, you know, just print the money and it'll solve whatever problem we're facing. So there's this weird line and it seems to be, you know, my thinking is that currently just that line is private property. It's like, sure, go and get all the something for nothing you can so long as you do not violate private property of yourself or others, because if you do that, you're just creating, you're set, you're sowing the seeds for future disaster every time you do that. Yeah, there's no, there's no such thing as inflation within reasonable bounds. And I think that's why Pal Yi puts that, that phrase in quotes, because, and, and again, as Tour Demista wrote in that paper, an inflation once began is a cycle that you cannot undo without paying the price. That once you begin an inflation, you're down the road of, you're, you're invoking the law of the exponential inflation. Exactly. The bill always comes due. Always. Governments can stop an inflation literally overnight if they want. They just, just stop creating money. And the Mm -hmm. only, the only reason they don't do it is I mean, think about what happened here. Think about what happened in the United States if the government just stopped creating new money. The housing market would collapse. Everything would collapse, but inflation would be over. But that collapse, it's like, okay, so there we go. Jerome Powell or whoever, whatever decision maker or decision makers. It's like face the reality of the deflationary collapse that is inevitable ultimately, or keep printing your way towards a hyperinflation. And so it's like they keep the, I guess the human immediacy bias perhaps is to keep taking this less bitter poison, right? The deflationary collapse would be an immediate painful reckoning, right? You would just feel all the pain at once. But what I could do instead is just print some more money and feel that pain over a longer period of time. But there will come a point, as you as we described with Germany here, with their, you know, what was their price inflation over a thousand percent in a few years, whatever. There does come a point where that that compounding, that exponential compounding culminates, right? And it culminates in is what Mises called the crack up boom, which is just the destruction of the currency system. And if you, if you doubt 
the gradual violence of inflation, then imagine an abrupt cessation of the inflation. We say there would be a collapse. Well, let's be specific. There would be a collapse in price, not a collapse mm -hmm. of the, the ecology, not a collapse of capital, um, the, the cellular process of humans. Right. There'd be collapse of the price level. Now, that would th probably throw the our, our social structure and our political structure and our country into complete disarray. And the debt structure, think, it annihilates the debt structure. But think, so think about if, if, if the price structure is so powerful that a collapse of the price structure could tear the country apart, then isn't it true that the inverted inflation of the price structure is equally as violent a problem, but in the other direction and at a slower rate? slower until it's not right right exactly slower until it's not you, slower because when you get to a hyperinflation it's the same thing only even worse ostensibly because had you, had you taken the deflationary uh bitter pill whatever you want to call this the deflationary shock earlier on you at that point you would not have had as much misallocated capital or as much buildup of the debt structure versus if you delay it all the way into a hyperinflation, you have maximum misallocated capital and maximum debt structure. So the pain is like, is, it's as bad as it can be pretty much when you get to the hyperinflation stage. I think the, the greatest self-deception is people not considering we had zero bailouts, then we had a $700 billion bailout, then a couple trillion, now 6 trillion. How do you not see the pattern? How do you not see that the next bailout will be 20 trillion and the one after that will be 100 or 200 trillion? And at that it's point, be... we'll all be making a billion dollars a year and we'll buy a house. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. There's your silver lining. Central banking is going to make everyone a billionaire. Right. <laughs> it's just not the well, billionaire this is, you thought you'd be. This is what I'll, I'll, I, 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 Felt like some of our past episodes were a little shy on quotes, so I had a lot of passages here for this. I'm going to read another one, and it's about what we're talking about. Demobilization was expected to bring on deflation. Instead, an extraordinary boom developed, stimulated by feverish attempts at industrial reconstru reconstruction and social improvements. The pent-up demand of the war years, armed with a volume of money as never seen before, burst onto the markets in the United States as elsewhere. The, the continuous rise in the money supply and incomes sparked a more or less corresponding inflation of prices. Even after the armistice, notwithstanding the great expansion of raw material and manufacturing production, the public was sold on the idea of a glorious age of reconstruction with skyrocketing demand, sustaining unbounded progress, an idea that was to survive the crisis of 1920 to 1921 and to grow in intensity. Accordingly, private spending and investing accelerated at a breathtaking pace and so did inflation of prices and wages. The situation was characterized by an unprecedented orgy of extravagance, a mania for speculation, overextended business in nearly all lines and in every section of the country. Central bank policies were singularly inept in restraining the excesses of the post-war boom.
again, you should feel like you're reading a book that's written about today. <laughs> right now. Yeah. That's another thing. I guess we haven't touched on this too much, but this whole idea of humans being directionally biased too, right? If the market's been going up for a few years, house prices go up every year, whatever, you just, you get conditioned into this pattern of expectation that it's just going to keep happening, right? This is, this is like the turkey problem Taleb talked about where the guy that comes to feed the turkey every day, you know, initially the turkey's skeptical of the guy, but then over time you start to trust the guy because he shows up and feeds you dinner every day. But then of course, on the day of Thanksgiving, the, the guy turns out to be the butcher and he kills you. So it's like inflation kind of conditions business owners or economic actors to become, uh, what did he say here? An unprecedented orgy of extravagance, a mania for speculation, overextended business in nearly all lines and in every section of the country. So it's, it's like mentally hijacking people and inducing them to take the maximum amount of risk, borrow the maximum amount of money, speculate, spend, et cetera. I do think Bitcoin also is partially an antidote to that because Bitcoin teaches you only through experience that downs come with the ups. Mm -hmm. And we don't experience the downs so much here anymore. Not if you're in real estate, not really in the stock market. Mm -hmm. I mean, with Bitcoin, you come to expect it. We've all taken our extravagant risks and been burned because we learned mm -hmm. the hard way. And with Bitcoin, I've really come to internalize that price is completely meaning, dollar price is meaningless. But that over the long term, I've gotten wealthier in real terms. Mm -hmm. And that that's what's important. And that the dollar price is just noise. Yeah. Yeah. And all, yeah, it's so interesting how Bitcoin does that. And all on a compressed time frame. Mm -hmm. Right. To go through one Bitcoin having cycle is almost like going through an entire multi decade market cycle or something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. So I think you learn restraint and you learn, you learn savings because you're incentivized to learn savings. Yeah. I want to bring in another quote here because I was trying to explain inflation. I, I do talk to my family a lot about inflation and I do try really hard. I never, I'm never shilling Bitcoin to them, but I am trying to open their eyes to what's happening. And I was explaining it to um, another family member and he's like, well, I don't really see the problem. Like if, if prices are going up and wages are going up, then everything, like, why is it a problem? as long as everything's going up, which is actually a fairly reasonable question and is an expression of why it has kind of worked because that's the deal that boomers made was that they'd enter the workforce late seventies, early eighties. They would enter um, a bond market at what? 13% yield, a stock market that was undervalued and real estate that was undervalued and, and their wages and their home prices would go up forever until they retired and it wouldn't be a problem. So for a generation, that was actually an okay bargain to make and they, they did pretty well. But when you get into the, that, that, that's when they were in the asset inflation part of the inflationary cycle, which is the first part of the inflationary cycle. But when you get into the price inflation part, which is we're entering now, um, Parker Lewis gave a talk, I think it was his BitBlock boom talk. I transcribed this without 
attributing to which of his talks, but I want to read it. And it's really insightful as to why my, my relative's question, the answer to my relative's question. Often when people think about hyperinflation, they just think about the side of it, which is trillions of dollars being printed. But what is actually happening is the price system and the pricing mechanism that's coordinating the activity of billions of people is sending all sorts of changing relative price signals. And when you have a complex system like the US economy, which is 25 trillion in dollar terms that ultimately certain businesses fail because they can't respond to changes in prices. And then when those businesses fail, goods and services don't get delivered to the people who've come to rely on them. And real goods and services ultimately become scarce relative to money, which is the opposite dynamic that needs to exist for money to be functional. So it's the impairment and fail to failure to deliver real goods and services that ultimately creates a run on real goods and services at the same time that money is being printed. So it's not simply a function of money gets printed and printed and you know, people don't value the money. It's a function of printing money causes real economic activity to be impaired because relative price signals all start to fluctuate and businesses can't react and businesses make decisions based on those changes in prices that cause their underlying businesses to be impaired and their customers go elsewhere. And that's when we see hyperinflationary events. It's actually economic distortion, disruption and impairment paired with money printing, but that's money printing, but, but, but it's the money printing that actually causes the impairment of economic activity. Yeah, that, I mean, that bingo. That's what we mean when we say misallocation of capital, right? I mean, maybe we don't unpack that term enough, but that's a great unpacking. Yeah, talk about that. Talk because this this is a really important. I'd never understood this until I heard Parker say this. Just, I mean, just I. What's the easy way? There's not a. It's pretty abstract, so it's not a super easy thing to describe. But if you stop to consider for a moment that we're using money itself as a perceptual tool, right? You're thinking in dollars, you're thinking through dollars, if you will. We're looking at the world, right? The value of our portfolios, the value of our assets, our business decisions, our negotiations, all of our commercial relationships, our financial planning. We're looking at all of that <laughs> through money. And when money starts to be uh, depreciated, right? Through, through arbitrary fiat currency supply inflation, it's now distort. You're not getting authentic signals from the market. You're not, you know, when there are price changes, you cannot discern whether that was supply and demand or this is a, a matter of policy, right? So you, we don't know, like, is my house actually worth more money? Is it actually more valuable? Or is the unit of economic perception I'm using to view and value my house just being diminished? Typically, it's the latter. And so this just creates a uh, disintegration between agent and arena, right? If you're the economic agent within an, an economic arena, trying to cooperate and compete with others in the same arena, there's, uh, there's noise introduced to the channel, I guess, is effectively the way to put it. And this impairs business functioning. Businesses cannot respond. They cannot, you're, you're it's almost like, I don't know if you've ever lived in a cold place and your windshield freezes over in the morning, you know, and you can't fucking see out of the windshield. That's sort of what's happening. Or it's like a heavy rain, I guess, to maybe use another analogy in your driving. You just can't see as clearly through the money that's being manipulated. 
And that throws everything into disarray, which causes a contraction in real economic activity, which means less goods and services being delivered. Then more people chase, right? They chase the goods and services as the money's being printed. And before you know it, everyone's selling dollars to buy anything that can't be printed and you're in a hyperinflation. Because if you're seeing the world through this money lens and, and misperceiving that the money is, is going where the value is, well, the money isn't scarce. The thing that's scarce is your energy and, and real capital, real value, the, the, the economy that the money backs, that's where the real value is. So you're placing all of that real capital and real time towards a spurious goal that's not important. And when the real need arises, like Parker says, suddenly those goods and services aren't there. So when yeah. someone says, well, supply chain, as if, as if a supply chain problem is separate from an inflation problem. They're the same problem. Yes. We pursued offshoring of jobs because of inflation. Yes. To protect inflation. And therefore, a supply chain problem is a manifestation of an inflationary signal gone awry. Mm -hmm. So when someone, next time someone says to me, it's a supply chain problem, they're like, oh, you mean inflation. Inflation caused that directly. Exactly. Yeah, we're back to the tail wagging the dog where mainstream media pundits will say, oh, well, there's supply chain issues, so there's price inflation. It's like, no, <laughs> there's monetary debasement, so there's supply chain problems. I think we're still, we're still living inside this best of all worlds fallacy because we're trying to have all these things that aren't compatible. A, a, a perfectly stable foreign exchange rate you, you can't have that with a guaranteed price and income level. I mean, you can't have a guaranteed price and income level, but you certainly can't have it with a perfectly stable foreign exchange rate. You can, you can just going back to the gold standard, you can either peg your currency to a common standard that everyone uses for trade and therefore suffer from the natural price fluctuations, which may include a deflationary period after a crisis in which your government is printed to trillion dollars. Or you can alter the price of your currency and try and manage the money supply and, and, and produce a nominal constant income rate through inflation. But once you do that, the inflation always puts upward price pressure on everything because you've started that, that exponential inflationary cycle. So, and that's not just assets and consumption goods, but, it, but I mean, here's the thing. It, it's complicated because it puts in real terms, it actually puts downward pressure on wages, the wages it was designed to protect because wages can't mm. keep up with asset inflation. When you go into, a, into, a, into an inflation, assets appreciate faster first. And so in real terms, wages can't keep up with it. So it puts downward pressure on wages. So then employees, workers try and bargain for wage increases that firms can't afford. And so corporations are always losing purchasing power as well. So they focus on cutting costs and they focus on stock buybacks to keep their assets going up. And so, and so now you, there, there's another aspect of inflation too. You have firms that are focusing not on innovation, mm. but on putting money into stock buybacks. Financialization. Financialization. And then trying to offshore all that, all trying to find cheaper labor 
offshore mm-hmm. because that's the only way to make the stock price go up. And you end up so, with an overly financialized U.S. economy like we have today. Right. So you can either have wages always goes up to pay for the mortgage that always goes up because you've signed a 30-year indentured servitude agreement with your bank for, for a home to live in, or you can peg your currency to a common standard of value and suffer the medicine periodically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there's this great talk. Um, oh, his first name is Jorg. I can't remember his last name. And he talked about Bitcoin moving us, transitioning from a fiat to a Bitcoin paradigm is the movement from price stability to measurement stability. And that's really what we're going for. It's like, instead of constantly tampering with a unit of measurement, which is the currency to try and get prices to be stable ostensibly, like we know there's a lot of other reasons there or a lot of other motivations, let's say, to just have a fixed unit of measurement and let everything vary around that. That's how we do every other measurement tool, right? The meter, the second, the mile, these things, the, the unit of measurement does not fluctuate with the value that it measures. Yet in money, we've just inverted it. <laughs> it's crazy. Every bank heist movie ever made is unwittingly part of the greatest propaganda ever perpetrated because you have like a favorite, one of my favorite movies of all time, Heat. Mm-hmm. And they're yeah, stealing, like you know, uh, duffels, duffel bags full of cash. That reinforces the idea that the cash is worth something, that people would try and steal it. And I feel like that's the thing that I, I have leapt forward into a place, and I know you have too, where the cash isn't worth anything, even though, even though today it certainly is. I, I sort of live in two worlds. I, I do not see dollars as valuable, but of course I need them. So I have to, mm-hmm. to f- go through this exercise of competing for them and um, looking for work to earn the dollars that I don't see as valuable. Yeah, it is a weird place to be, honestly. You've got, you're mentally kind of all in one world, but then you've also have to have you have to keep one foot in this other world um, because that's where the world is. right? I mean, um, and I was mentioning this to you offline. Like it's a, it does create a bit of a schism. Yeah. Within me where like, I feel, you know, practically there's, I think it's practically sensible now where again, this is, what are we late February now, 2022, uh, Russia just invaded yesterday, right? Uh, what is the yep. name of the city they invaded? Kiev, Kiev, um, seems practical to be holding dollars in this situation, but I don't like that other part of me, that cognitive part of me that lives in the future, I guess, does not feel good about holding dollars, but the practical you know, boots on the ground, me, um, does hold dollars. So it's, it's a weird, it's a weird feeling to say the least. I I think holding some dollars is not at all irresponsible and not at all bad. I actually think 
not holding dollars is okay too. Um, but I feel like if people feel like they need to hold dollars, I would say that's probably smart. And it's because the next giant burst of inflation that we see will only come about the, 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 the government, the fed can't really do it until there's another crisis and an immediate financial crisis. Like maybe what's happening in Ukraine, maybe it'll cause the fed to not raise rates. Maybe it won't, but in terms of like a massive inflationary impulse, that can't happen until there's an economic meltdown that mm-hmm. where where the fed or the government is up against a wall and so it, it what it means is that my thesis as a bitcoiner of inflation is either slow motion or fast motion but the fast motion won't happen without a major deflationary impulse first which motivates the inflationary impulse and you, yeah. you, you have to live through the deflationary impulse, which means you're going to need dollars. So, you know. Yeah, that's the pattern, you know, we've observed typically. And that's kind of the pattern I'm betting on. But um, I don't know. There's just different levels of yourself evaluating all of this. And there's several levels of myself that don't, I do not appreciate holding dollars. But um feels like homework yeah yeah so something like that it, well and the moral you know we talked about this before the moral aspect of contributing to reservation demand for the dollar while at the same time you know taking an honest assessment of the system it's like oh this is the biggest system of fraud in human history by an order of magnitude or two like it's really really bad and here I am holding some of their tokens. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I, I think I think I think Bitcoiners and uh, myself included, like you have a desire to actually get rid of the dollars. You don't. You don't. You actively don't want them, and it is matched by an actual, like, real strong desire to hold the Bitcoin. Like, you just want it at any price, and I don't think that's a bad strategy either. But it does create some uh, cognitive dis- dissonance if you, yes, if, 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 if in your heart it, you land on, it feels more comfortable to hold some dollars, or if you have a family and you know that your family would be too stressed out if you didn't hold dollars. That's all. A lot of people aren't like their families aren't going to be comfortable with them not having dollars. So if you mm-hmm. have to have them for your, for your safety, it's going to feel weird. And I think that's, mm-hmm. that's like just a skill. That's a skill you have to develop is being comfortable with that internal dissonance. Mm-hmm. Well, let me close out with one more quote, which is, I think sums up our, today, 2021, 2022. Pal, you write the 1920, because then there was a depression in 20 to 21, which we haven't really mentioned, but it all, the dam broke and there was a major depression. The 1920 to 21 crisis the greatest American monetary contraction since 1873 to 1879 had a profound psychological shock effect. It generated deflation anxieties on top of existing inflation anxieties. But the two traumatic experiences of opposite directions do not add up to a balanced mind. 
driven by a pathetic conflict of contradictory concepts, Western societies took refuge in a no man's land of eternal prosperity that offered relief from both kinds of anxieties, the dream of a gold standard with price stability. And which we both, we all know is impossible. That was the, the fallacy of having the best of all worlds. And that's where we're at today. It, yeah, it's uh, anxiety on both sides, right? People worried mm -hmm. about inflation, but also deflation. Mm -hmm. so. and, and they're both a problem. Yes. And they're both completely obliterated on a Bitcoin standard. I don't think any, I don't think the words will ever be uttered again, inflation or deflation. Just be like, yeah, of course prices go down every year. No shit. It's called the economy. Yeah, totally. You know, like that's not it's not a phenomenon. It's not a it's not a disease. It's a it's it's the way prices work. Yeah. And back the thing you said this episodes ago where we could ring the bell every order of magnitude, you know, where we had to actually increase the divisibility of Bitcoin to reflect how much more wealthier we had become. Mm-hmm. It would just be one big celebration and there would be no anxiety related to it at all. If there's one point that if there's one point that means the most of everything we've said, you said it in I think it's episode four, which is that once you become a holder of Bitcoin, you are even if you don't lift a finger, once you've earned one share one fractional share of the world's wealth, which can't be diluted, you are now a participant in everything that every human does to make the world wealthier. And I think that that's the most important part of Bitcoin in the way it gets everyone to be on the same team and to participate in wealth creation. Economists who glibly point out that World War II ended the depression I don't believe it, and it's the most immoral observation because so much destruction happened. And that, to me, is the ultimate fiat mindset, is to even contemplate for a moment that anything was ended, that, 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 that any um, financial, financial salvation came from World War II because you had so much destruction and death. Once you own Bitcoin, the last thing you want to see is any destruction because destruction makes you poorer. Exactly. Right. And I think in that way, holding Bitcoin and becoming a vested partner in the world's progress instantly pushes you towards being a moral person and being an ethical person. Yes. Yeah. The ultimate win-win relationship, right? You now as a Bitcoin holder, want to see every other Bitcoin holder succeed, become smarter, flourish in their career, in their endeavors. You want to see capital stocks increase. You don't want to see any warfare, any politicking. Like what is politicking on a Bitcoin standard? Pointless, right? Pointless. But you're here to impose your opinion on me? For what reason? Go fuck yourself. Take your sats and go over there. I'll go over here. It's just, it, it is, we've, we've touched on so many of these psychological aspects of money and 
how we've deceived ourselves by manipulating money. It's like Bitcoin is just an elixir to the whole thing. And it just aligns human effort and perception in a way that we've never, never previously imagined with any tool before it. I guess, again, the gold was a rough approximation of what we could expect to see on a Bitcoin standard. Um, but, you know, as we've touched on here, it was just brief and it wasn't perfect by any means because of all the, the limitations of gold itself. So. Yeah, well, the world needs it a lot right now. Yeah, I guess that's all, all I can really ultimately say. We're saying all these things and. I think there's a lot of credibility to them coming to fruition, but we have got a long ways to go. Well, I think I gotta, I gotta wrap it up for today. All right. This has been a good one. Yeah, this is a really, really good one.